0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com airlines and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Airlines Confidential. This is Ben Balanza and I'm glad you downloaded another great show. I'm joined as always by my co-host Chris Chime. So Chris, how goes it?
2: Hey, Ben. All is good. As always, lots going on. And another great guest this week, Andrew Levy, the CEO of startup airline Avalo, or is it Avelo? Potato, potato. We'll let him resolve that in a bit. But first, let's cover off a few quick news items. So here we go. Last week, we talked about the announcement of the 20% emissions reduction goal for U.S. airlines by 2030. So wondering if you saw that British Airways operated what it's calling the first perfect carbon-neutral flight powered by a blend of jet fuel and 35% sustainable alternative fuel made with recycled oil. So let's take you back to the C-suite. Your ops team comes in and says, we've got a great idea to be a test partner for a sustainable aviation fuel project. What are your first three questions? Great
1: question, Chris. Well, here are probably the first three questions I'd ask. First, I'd say, well, if it's fuel-based, How much of this would we have to do or how much of our fleet would we have to fuel this way to meet that 20% goal? Like if we put this kind of fuel into our whole fleet, would we blow away the 20% goal or would we only be halfway there or what? So is this blended fuel a realistic pathway to that goal? That would be my first question. The second is, I'd want to know whether there are any changes that would be needed to the engines or probably less likely the airplane itself to sort of take this fuel. Obviously, when you know in our cars, some cars say don't put gas of a certain type in this car, and you certainly wouldn't put diesel in a non diesel car, right? And so, if you're putting a different fuel, do you have to do anything to the engines and what is that cost or what's that retrofit or things? And then the last question I think I'd ask is, do we have any sense if we use alternative fuel the way British Airways has done here, sort of a, a blended fuel? What's the current thinking on whether that creates any longer term maintenance issue in the engine using this? Does that mean we might have to you know, rebuild the engine sooner than we otherwise would? Or maybe does the engine last even longer because of this? So I think those are the kind of questions I'd want to ask is, if this is a test, where does it get us? And what's it really mean practically to use this kind of stuff?
2: Good points. I I think I'd probably add, again, from my PR perspective, okay, how are we going to convince our passengers and our flight crews that this is safe? Give me the data about the safety of this. Why would they want to get on an airplane uh, being powered by this blended fuel? So I would probably add that one, not that there's any question that's not safe, but kind of what's the story about safety that we can go out there and tell?
1: Oh, that's a really good ad, Chris. I think that's smart. That's why you'd be anyone's best uh, communications guy, I think.
2: <laughs> then down Latin America way, uh, American Airlines then goal announced a marketing partnership in which AA will also make about a two hundred million dollar investment in the largest Brazilian airline through a series of smaller partnerships. Ben, do you think American can cobble together a decent replacement for the loss of their Latam partnership to Delta?
1: Well, they're certainly trying, Chris. You know, my son and I play this probably silly but fun little game that we call the airline hub draft, where we draft airline hubs the way you might draft a fantasy football team. And the idea is if if you draft O'Hare, you're basically getting access to 80% of the gates and slots, if appropriate, and resource at O'Hare. So you tried to build the best network you can, you know, with the best airports you can draft. And in that game, we've learned. That if somebody drafts Los Angeles, LAX, that the only real way to get access to Southern California is to put together this group of maybe Ontario, Long Beach, Orange County, and these, you know, these different smaller airports and say, can I have enough access to the Los Angeles metro area with these smaller satellite airports? given that I'm blocked out of LA. And it seems like that's exactly the strategy American is using here. Now, JetSmart in Chile, or Viva Colombia, as we learned a couple of weeks ago in Colombia, aren't natural partners, I think, for a big airline like American, right? It'd be like American partnering with Spirit, right? Right. the, The models just don't work that well. But geographically, they do provide American with access to customer bases in geographies that American lost with LATAM. And Brazil's the biggest country in South America and Goal's the biggest airline in that country. So it seems logical to me that they would try to lock up that kind of partnership. And American for many, many years has been the largest American airline serving Latin America. They've had a lot of competition in that space with Spirit and JetBlue and others flying from South Florida into a number of Central American, Caribbean and Northern South American markets, low-cost carriers starting in South America and flying north, Volaris and Mexico flying north. So it makes sense to me that they're doing this. But clearly, the landscape of travel to and from Latin America has changed, and I don't think Americans ever going to get back to the dominance that they once had with a real dominant American, a hub in Miami, and partnership with LATAM and such. But they're doing the best they can, I think.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. It's almost like you know, the days of a privileged position at London Heathrow or Tokyo for just a couple of U.S. carriers. Those days are long gone, too. I have to wonder about the dynamics of a bunch of smaller airlines being able to attach themselves to the world's largest American. You know, Maybe they might have a, the benefit of a, a, some deeper loyalty by these smaller carriers to be part of a bigger thing. So we'll have to see how those dynamics play out.
1: Well, in a lot of smaller carriers, This I'm sure this isn't true with Goal, But a lot of smaller carriers don't necessarily have a loyalty program or certainly don't have one with the gravitas of advantage. So in some ways, bringing that loyalty ecosystem to some of these smaller airlines, they may see that as a value of the American partnership as well.
2: Yep, agree with that. While Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines are redefining aviation with up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and a 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com.
1: And Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear, and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. I know every time I go to an airport, the first thing I look for is, is there a Clear line?
2: So, Ben, last question before we get to our talk with Andrew Levy. Let's talk one of your favorite topics, landing slots at capacity-controlled airports and competition. The FAA was told by a federal court in May that they had to choose low fares and competition over delays and free up some unused slots at Newark Airport. Spirit Airlines had sued the agency to get them to award some of those unused slots that Southwest had returned when they pulled out of Newark. So the FAA is opening up a process to award the slots JetBlue has said they will apply. Clearly, Spirit wants them. All 16 slots, eight round trips will go to one carrier. So, crystal ball time. Do you think Spirit has an advantage or a disadvantage in this proceeding since they filed the lawsuit that forced the FAA to act?
1: Ooh, that's a great question, Chris. I mean, if you think that the FAA can sort of forget the fact that they're even doing this because they were sued, (laughs) then I think Spirit would have a good chance simply because, you know, they're known as a carrier with probably the lowest fares, maybe matched only by Frontier or Allegiant, but I don't know if either of those two are applying for these slots. And Spirit also has a long track record of trying, sometimes with lawyers, trying to get more access into New York in particular. Now, that said, JetBlue is a carrier that the FAA likes more because they don't get as many complaints about JetBlue as they do about Spirit. And so they may think that they're doing their job well by giving these slots to JetBlue, who is a much lower fare carrier than Than American and probably a lot lower fare even than Southwest today. But I think the best news here is that the FAA is going to be awarding these slots. I don't think it's right when a carrier leaves a restricted airport and then that capacity either just goes away or goes to the largest incumbent carrier in the airport. For competition, I think it's great. So I'm glad that Spirit and JetBlue are both applying and I actually hope more carriers apply too. And I I do think it's a little odd though that the FAA made this position that all are going to go to one carrier. In other things like this, they haven't had a problem with divvying them up and say I'll give four here, four here and you know, six or eight over here. So I'm, I was kind of surprised at that, and they must have had a reason for that. But maybe they thought since Southwest had them all, we just want to make it simple and let one new carrier replace Southwest.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to handicap this just yet. I do think JetBlue has a bit of a hill to climb here with regard to them getting slots at Newark doesn't really add competition to the New York area, given their strong position and at JFK. So if this is about more competition out of New York and, and price competition, you know, giving more slots to JetBlue maybe doesn't satisfy that, although it's a different airport. But we'll see who else steps up and puts their hand out for these slots.
1: It's certainly going to be a fun one to watch. Uh,
2: next up, our conversation with Andrew Levy. But a reminder the Airlines Confidential is an official media partner of the Airlines Passenger Experience Expo, Apex 2021, being held October 19th through 21st in Long Beach, California. Look for Ben and I among the 300-plus exhibitors. There's still time to register at expo.apex.aero, A-E-R-O.
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very happy to have my old friend and fantastic CEO Andrew Levy here with us. Andrew, we're so excited you're here. And from the days when you were at Allegiant and I was at Spirit, it seems like they always put us back to back with each other to see who could say they had the lower costs or the higher margins or something. And I remember that fondly. Yeah,
3: or the most creative ancillary revenue idea. And uh, yeah, no, that's uh, we've been uh, we've been tied together for a while now.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. Well, please tell our listeners about your background and uh, why aviation has been so important to you.
3: Well, you know, I, I started my career in aviation really is by accident. I, I ended up uh, joining ValueJet Airlines um, right out of law school and I didn't have any deep passion for aviation. It just kind of just that just kind of fell in my lap and decided after a week or two that I really enjoyed it. And both there was the uh, the dynamic environment that every airline is in, in terms of just all the variables and the, kind of the the stimulation from just the just the intellectual challenges of, of so many different issues to manage, and uh, but then also being in a in a small early stage, very fast growing company, which was just really exciting, and so I kind of got bit by I guess uh, the airline bug, but also the entrepreneurial bug from that point forward, and did a lot of interesting things since then had a had an opportunity to to work at a legion you know we maury and i were there together back in 01 and we we ended up restructuring that airline maury had a an investment in it and uh, i came on to do some some work with him we were gonna do a bunch of other things actually we we're gonna do investing in, in a variety of other industries but we got kind of sucked back into aviation when we took a legion out of bankruptcy and restructured it and you know, 13 and a half, 14 years later, uh, you know, we had a, a fantastic run that's continued on since I left about seven years ago. And uh, and then since that time, I was actually looking at doing something like I'm doing right now with Avello, starting in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. Ended up doing the exact opposite, going up to uh, United, where I was, I was CFO for just under two years. And uh, left there uh, because it just wasn't. Uh, I I, could, I just knew it wasn't going to be the most satisfying thing for me in long term, and, and I miss being in an entrepreneurial environment. So I, I left there and was able to structure a deal, which uh, which is now Avello, and here we are, three three plus years later, having fun.
2: So Andrew, let's follow up on a couple of things you said there with regard to you. You kind of done all parts of the airline industry in the context of ultra-low-cost carriers and restructurings and going to a legacy carrier, United, and now a startup. What did your experience at a legacy carrier like United, what did that do to prepare you for what you're up to now? Gosh, I
3: I think that I'm not sure there's that much that I would attribute to my experience at United that's, that's as relevant for right now. I had an it was a, it was an amazing experience. I learned a ton. You know, a company the size of United is just such a different animal than than what I'm involved in now. I mean, they're just completely different and the 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 issues are different. I mean, it's still an airline and you still have the kind of typical airline issues that that you have in any air carrier. But the the management approach and the and the way to lead and the way to to kind of run a business or an area is just so different when you're operating at this at this size that we're in right now I will tell you though I did gain a, a continued uh, appreciation for what a professional operation looks like which is something that United does really well they really had great people and just great you know just great uh, I don't know, when you've been doing it for decades, you know, you build up this kind of institutional knowledge and way of doing things and certainly took uh, an, a, an even greater appreciation for the skill involved in running a really complex operation and running it really, really well. So I'd say that's probably the maybe one of the biggest things I took away from that experience that applies to, to what we're doing at Avello. Besides that, it was just, it was interesting to, to learn how uh, a lot of Uh, people at least in the legacy environment think and not to say that it's the same everywhere but they certainly approach things in a very different way I think they probably thought many times that I'd been kind of dropped in from Mars with some of the the things that I thought we should question uh, and at least discuss and consider but look it was a great experience I really enjoyed my time there but it wasn't uh, it just wasn't going to be the right place for me long term and so I'm just excited to be doing what I'm doing now I feel much more at home and 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 it's fun to, to build something from scratch.
1: Well, so let's talk about building something from scratch then. What was your inspiration for Avalo? And can you compare the business model here with something else in the business? Or are you really doing something new in the space?
3: Well, so first of all, I got to get you to say it right. It's Avalo. Uh, kind of okay. like yellow or, or hello. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll work on that then. But no, look, uh, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I think that, first of all, we're trying to do something different. Now, what does it look like? You know, the inspiration of the, of the strategy and, and how that evolves will, will be, you know, we'll see over time because, you know, every early stage business I've been a part of is, has had to pivot and adjust along the way in ways that you couldn't have always predicted at the front end of things. Obviously, COVID has thrown a big curveball at, at everybody. Um, so we're navigating through those challenges. But, um, you know, I was inspired by taking some of the attributes of what we did really well at Allegiant. Some of the things that helped Southwest become the airline it is now, if you look back into the 70s and 80s in terms of how they built their route network, focusing on, for instance, in that case, secondary airports. Today, they're not. But back in the day, you know, Oakland was was kind of a, you know, it, it was not something you thought about when you were flying to San Francisco. And Baltimore uh, certainly wasn't. I grew up in D.C. And I know you live there now, Ben. I mean, back back when I was a kid, you, Baltimore was like, you know, just that that was not dc that was just some distant place that you just didn't go to other than for a baseball game and obviously that's changed and they help bring that change about and and there's countless other examples that's a big focus of ours is focusing on secondary airports of large metro areas uh ones that we like to think if 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 this was southwest in the 70s or 80s they they would be the same kind of places they would want to go to because it's different it's uh, allows you to get in and out quickly it's less expensive Uh, But but most important is the first part, which is that it's different. It's unique, and you're maybe not serving the needs of everyone in a community, but you're serving the needs and offering convenience to those uh, who live in, you know, that that live closer to the airport. And uh, if you offer a reasonable enough schedule with uh, flights to places they want to go, um, you know, you don't need to take the whole market, you just take a little slice of it that just happens to be uh, convenient for a sufficient number of people. Now, obviously that's a little different than Southwest where they went in with really high frequency and whatnot, but, but so that's kind of inspired by Southwest, our secondary airport approach. We're also really focused on our people. From day one, made a real emphasis on uh, building a very positive work culture, one where we really value our people and we treat our customers in the same manner. Certainly, we've seen what Southwest has done and has created this enormous loyalty over so many years by, by really trying to, to, you know, just kind of build a long-term relationship with their customers and, of course, their own people. So I think that was really kind of inspired by, by Southwest. The Allegiant stuff would be, you know, secondary airplanes, again, doing something different and unique, staying away from direct head-to-head competition, creating a market. And some of it's, I guess, a little bit of Ryanair, too, in some respects, because they do some of both of those things. And so what it looks like at the end of the day, we'll see. But, you know, the notion initially is to go into secondary airports and, and serve markets that are unserved. Now, we're in Burbank where we're serving a lot of smaller markets because, you know, obviously Southwest Airlines has a very large presence in Burbank. And we're trying to, again, do something that's unique and different. That's taking us into some smaller markets over there. In the East, New Haven itself is different. It's a it's an airport that has had an enormous amount of I guess maybe potential. Many people believe it has a lot of uh, people that live nearby there, and we can offer a great deal of convenience to them because the alternative that they've become so used to is driving a really long distance into either LaGuardia or JFK or White Plains or Hartford. Um, but so this is a little bit of a different value proposition, and in this case, we'll be literally the only game in town when we get started. And. And so from there, you know, we can kind of do pretty much anything we think makes sense. And we're starting off with flights to five markets in Florida at the, the right time of year to start Florida. So we're very, very bullish on that. And, and we'll see where that goes. We have several other target uh, airports on our list that we'll approach over time. But But for now, we're focusing on making Burbank really hum. And the same thing with New Haven, which is starting up very soon.
1: More of our conversation with Andrew Levy in a moment. And a reminder for Andrew and all of our listeners that Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections. TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management.
2: So obviously none of us could have predicted, you know, COVID 2 years ago and where we'd be right now, but tell our listeners, why was 2021 the right time to start an airline?
3: Well, so look, in fairness, I mean, you know, I started this this adventure in in 2018 and obviously long before COVID Ever popped up. We took a bit of time to raise the capital. It actually took longer than I expected it would. We finished that process in November of 2019. Had the DOT's approval a couple of months later, and then we then we officially closed the transaction. So this was January of 2020. So it's great timing in that sense that, you know, had COVID popped up a few months earlier, there's no way that we would have gotten this investment closed and, and be doing what we're doing. So we had a nice timing there at the time i felt like you know after covid a week or two after it was really clear what a what a mess it was going to be we, we really thought that we were in, a, in an incredible position like nine eleven on steroids right and you know expected there to be just massive opportunity everywhere because of just simply being in the right place at the right time and, and expecting that there would be you know a lot of disruption of course that's not how it played out and so you know it's been really interesting to watch i mean the amount of government support that's been provided Um, And of course, the Fed, with really easy money supporting the economy in general, it's just been, I mean, the last year and a half have just been, I've been surprised at every corner. But look, I really believe that when you have a really great cost structure and you're doing something different to avoid, you know, really kind of going after something that other airlines really care deeply about, I think you have a great chance of being a successful low cost carrier. And the market is massive for low-cost carriers, if you look historically, they continue to take share. And you can look at that in any geography of the world. And I think the reason that is, is because they quite honestly, they have a better business. And the reason is, is because the vast majority of people who fly around on airplanes, they care by far and away more than anything about the price. Now they care about other things too, and, and everybody's different. Some people care more about certain things, but the vast majority of people care mostly about price. And so if you have really low costs, and you can offer, therefore, really low prices. You're going to have every chance of being successful. And I think that the proof is in the pudding. I mean, it's just you can see it in all the numbers. And and so, you know, the long and the short of it is that, you know, whether 2021 will prove over time to be a great time to start, That I think time will tell. But I think that ULCCs in markets where uh, pricing is overall, you know, relatively high, which I think the U.S. is, I think there's always a great opportunity to come into the market, add more seats, bring more competition, bring more choice to consumers, and uh, and and have a, a really good opportunity to be successful. And that's that's where we are right now.
2: So I'm going to follow up with one quick question, and you kind of alluded to it with regard to the culture and and those priorities also uh, of how you're building the company. But how do you feel you're doing in assembling a team, not just a management team, but you know pilots are at a premium right now. Uh, there's a labor shortage. Are You, are you satisfied with the, the progress of putting together a, a team? Yeah. No, I, I I think we're doing a great job in,
3: in in that regard. We've put together a a really really great team, and it's and it's a team that's built for you know we're flying three airplanes today. Actually, we have six today on the certificate. But there's three out in Burbank. There's three more going to New Haven soon. We have another four coming right after that. So, I mean, this is a team that's built to scale, but we have a a really great combination of people from a number of different backgrounds, some people from Allegiant, some people from United, some people from Delta and JetBlue and Spirit and just a very interesting mix and people from ExpressJet, Compass, Trans States. I mean, but a lot of really, really strong Professionals and and a terrific team, uh, a terrific leadership team. Um, as far as the as the pilots are concerned, you mentioned pilots. Yeah, you know it's interesting. As when we when we started hiring about a year ago, clearly it, it was uh, less of a pilots market. Now that's completely shifted. It's almost like to back where we were pre COVID, and so that'll create some challenges. And but I think that at the end of the day, I don't believe in the pilot shortage. I just believe that it's a market and. If there's fewer pilots or more opportunities, then you're just, you know, capitalism is alive and well. You're just gonna to have to increase your your compensation package or other ways to entice people to come to come join you. I think we have a great proposition. We're certainly not paying at the top of the industry by any means, you know, we can't afford to be at Delta's level or, or UPS or FedEx, but we're competitive in the ULCC space. We're lower than uh, Allegiant, Spirit, Frontier, but those companies have been around 20 plus years. They're quite large. What we offer uh, prospective pilots is to come in and get a very high seniority number, which is something that has value for the rest of your career. You just have to believe that we're going to be here in the long term, and I'm, I'm certainly convinced of that, and we have to convince others of that. But if you want to make that bet, you come in, you have a high seniority number, that, that allows you one of the greatest uh, benefits of a pilot that there is, which is control your schedule. So that plus the ability to come home every night, which, you know, look, some people like to travel around the world and overnight everywhere. That's fine and good. But a lot of people like to come home and sleep in their own bed every night. So we offer that kind of lifestyle with our bases and our schedules, which is very similar to what we did at Allegiant. Same thing that a lot of other ULCCs around the world do is the airplanes come home every night. So we offer a great quality of life, high seniority number, competitive pay. I've never seen pilot pay go down. So, I mean, over time, that's just kind of how things go. It will go up and we'll maintain uh, competitiveness there. But so far we're attracting terrific, uh, terrific folks. And I think part of the attraction too is they want to be part of building something. You know, it's really fun to be part of a young, early stage, fast growing company and building something from scratch. And, you know, it's not for everybody, but you know, there's a lot of people who really enjoy this and, and that's a little bit of an X factor when we're out there recruiting people. But look, it's a tough labor market for sure across the board. I mean, you know, this is I've never seen anything like this. And since I've been, a, you know, in the workforce 20 some odd years ago, I mean, you know, it's just it's incredible the bid for talent across the board. And uh, and so we'll continue to remain competitive and we think continue to attract great people.
1: Well, let's go back to the New Haven decision for a minute, Andrew. As you know, and I think many of our listeners know, if you get a private pilot's license, one of the things you have to do is complete solo this long cross-country flight where you go to two different airports of a certain distance away. And back in the 1980s when I got my license, one of the airports I flew to on my long cross-country was New Haven, Tweed Airport. And I went to see my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And uh, since that time... I've always wondered why it didn't have commercial service. It's right there next to Yale, a lot of people around it. It took until 2021 in you to sort of say, I'm going to serve this airport. My question is, do you think it has the scalability to be a true, you know, New York area airport that you'd want it to be? Can you fly enough places from New Haven to make it work, you think? Well, you know, We think yes,
3: Ben, but look, the way we look at it is, first of all, the reason that we were able to structure the deal that we were able to structure with the airport authority, with AbPorts, which has the the management contract at the airport, is because there were some local restrictions on the amount of service that was permitted in that airport, which were uh, overturned by, uh, uh, by a state judge. I think it was a state judge. Anyway, this was a challenge that was done because the community wanted to get the airport to become an economic driver. And that all came to pass and occurred in the early days of COVID. And so, as you can imagine, back in that time, everybody was distracted. Nobody knew how this was gonna play out. This is, you know, first quarter of 2020. Well, we caught wind of that big change that had occurred there. And we got very excited about the opportunity of doing something unique there because we believe, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of people in that part of the world in Fairfield County, uh, certainly in in the New Haven, uh, New, the Havens area, all the New Haven, East Haven, etc. Of course, Yale, which is a huge employer, apart from just you know having a, a large university there, and then and then going north of there, and yeah, have this huge number of people that are actually closer by drive time to Tweed than they are to the other airports that they're used to going to. And our ability to go in there and offer just enormous convenience to these people who are also generally high income, at least on average, statistically higher income folks, that's what we like so much about, is being able to do something that's unique and different and convenient and insulated. And because it's so insulated, that's part of why we're able to offer so much value. So it's faster to get there for many of these people. And then once you get there, it's a completely different experience than what you would get if you end up going to JFK and LaGuardia. You know, it's just typical big airports, you know, long lines, difficult, uh difficult to navigate through, expensive place to park. Um, you know, everything's just more difficult at these bigger airports. So New Haven offers the small airport convenience as well as um closer to many people who like to travel a lot and have a lot of money. So we're very bullish about the opportunity. We think it's kind of a New York metro area airport. Obviously, nobody's going to leave from Manhattan and drive over to New Haven. But certainly the market we're going after, most of those people today uh, go into the New York airports, mostly JFK and LaGuardia, certainly some to Hartford and some smaller number to White Plains. But look, we're we're very excited about it. But time will tell. You know, I, I like to test and measure. So we're starting off leaning into Florida at, you know, I think the right time of year. We're going to learn what works well. There's some things that'll probably work better than we expect. There's some things that won't work as well as we expect. We'll definitely continue to experiment. I don't view this as simply you know New Haven down to Florida. I think there's a lot more opportunity there. But time will tell. But, but we're very bullish about the opportunity. The airport is pretty small, so there's a physical kind of footprint limitation as far as the, the amount of activity that we can have out of there until they build a new terminal on the other side of the airport, which will happen in the next few years. Um, but, uh, but certainly ample uh, size for us to uh, put, you know, six, seven airplanes parked there. And of course, we can serve it from other areas in the country as well. So, you know, when it's all said and done, I think we'll have a pretty nice size operation there.
2: So you've got your West Coast uh, operation and base in Burbank standing up, New Haven coming along pretty quickly. Eventually, do you think you need something more in the middle of the country to just allow your aircraft and schedules and, and routes to flow better?
3: Well, you know, right now we're, we're approaching this with, with kind of isolated networks, um, which is actually exactly what we did at Allegiant, where there is no, there's no flowing of aircraft. It's just simple out and back flying. And you end up with kind of little, almost, they're almost like little independent airlines. I mean, they're obviously all part of the airline, but they're little bases and never the two shall meet in many cases. And we'll see if we stick to that over time. There's a simplicity associated with that, which allows you to, to have your cost be as low as possible, which makes that really attractive. So I don't think we would look to markets in the or, or airports in the middle of the country to flow airplanes, but there are there are opportunities throughout the United States that we think are very interesting, and some certainly are are between the coasts and uh, and you know we'll see how things develop, but. Yeah, I try not to think too far into the future. You know, we need to make what we have right now work and work really well. And if we do that, both in the West and over in New Haven, then we'll continue to have lots of opportunities that we can go uh, tackle and, and be very successful at. So uh, I don't know. I like to focus a little less on the longer term and more on the kind of the, the here and now, so to speak, but, but with a long term view as to where we want to go. And, and really, this is a business that's built based on setting up a number of different bases in different parts of the country. So it's not about any one place. It's about doing something similar like this in a lot of different locations around the U.S. So I expect we'll scale by adding new bases, certainly by adding frequency in existing bases. And we'll see. We'll see how things shake out over time as far as where our bets are. It may be that there may be a market out there. Maybe it'll be New Haven that gets to be far larger than we anticipate. And if that's the case, then that's great, because that means it's working really well, if that's what happens, because we'll allocate our capital appropriately.
2: That's all fair, Andrew. I mean, Nick Saban intends to win the championship every year, but he's going to win the game in front of him first every week. Yeah, I mean, to me, you just
3: got to kind of put one foot in front of the other each and every day. And you do those things, you do the little things each and every day really well, then at some point you look back and, and you've ended up, you know, building something that's pretty big. I mean, we, we used to do that at a legion. We didn't really look back very often, but every once in a while we'd step back and say, wow, this is pretty cool. Look at what we've done here. And uh, there was never a grandiose plan. There was never a, the size was not, did not matter. I personally, I think uh, big is not necessarily beautiful. Big is just big. And uh, it's certainly not necessarily better. Well, it can be better, but usually you get big because you, you're doing a good job. And because you're doing a good job and you're generating good financial returns, it makes sense to continue to invest in the business. But it has to be in that order. Can't be big just to be big. It's got to be big just it's almost like a byproduct of being being successful and finding markets and being able to to drive growth because it's working.
1: Well Andrew, as you know, one of the hundreds of acronyms we use in this industry is PDEW, which stands for per day each way and often pronounced Padu. When you were at Allegiant you won a place in the Airline Planners Hall of Fame when you said, you can't peddle your way into our markets. Everyone loved that statement. Is that true for Avello as well?
3: Avello? Uh we're gonna, get, we're gonna get you there, Ben. I, I, I know, We're gonna practice. You know, I, know. I, know. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know, honestly. I mean, we definitely like to create opportunities where we have some defensibility of our business. And you know, in Burbank it's going into markets that are different that others probably just don't care about. Certainly there are markets at Southwest doesn't go to, they're smaller or secondary airports in some cases. In the East, it's the fact that we have the ability to take a, a large amount of the space, so to speak, and and you know not that others can't find a new Haven because obviously they can, and I'm sure they will, and especially if we do well, I'm sure there'll be people that want to come in as well. But we'll have a kind of a privileged position in a sense by being there first and being able to take you know a lot of the of the space, uh, quite honestly, in terms of aircraft parking positions and whatnot, and. And that's, uh, and that's exciting. So I think that on the one hand, out West, these are smaller markets that I think uh, that holds true. It's, it's hard for someone to come in and, and make that work also. Uh, in the East, it's uh, it's more about the airport itself. You know, it's a very small facility. And, you know, we, we like that. We like the ability to, to go into somewhere that's small. And, and look, we'd rather be the big fish in the small pond. Then the small fish in the big pond i think that's kind of a, a philosophy that that we prefer we did it that way at Allegiant is the same thing and i think it served us really well there and you know this is not a part two but like i mentioned at the beginning there's certain things that we did really well there that i think are uh, applicable no matter what you do in terms of airlines and that's one of them which is to kind of just do your own thing, stay away build your own market have a, the ability to better control your your environment, your pricing, and, uh, and you know, let other folks do what they do and, and uh, we'll do what we do. And as long as we have a great cost structure, good balance sheet, and we're generating good margins, then, you know, we'll be in a great place.
2: Andrew, we'd love to talk about your vision for the airline and all the things that we've been discussing uh, today, but we do have to talk about COVID just for a second. That's the world we live in. You know, Scott Kirby was on Face the Nation over the weekend talking about his airline, United Airlines, being prepared, if need be, to implement some kind of a vaccination requirement for your travel. What are your thoughts on this general topic of requiring vaccinations for people on airplanes and how might that impact your business operations?
3: Well, um, look, I don't think it would be a good thing, at least in the near term. You know, clearly there's some portion of our population that simply doesn't want to get vaccinated or for whatever reason. And obviously, the uh, policing or enforcement of that is is costly and, and difficult. And so I don't think that would be good for air travel in general. I can't say that we've given a lot of thought to how we would manage that. But, you know, we're pretty small. We got a lot of really highly capable people. And if we have to go that path, we'll certainly figure it out. You know, I don't think it's necessary, quite honestly. I think there's been so many countless studies about the relative safety of air travel in a COVID environment and there's there's no, so no such thing as zero risk but as far as uh, risk mitigation i think the airlines uh, have done a great job and and we're we're doing the same thing as others are doing we kind of we got a chance to watch for quite some time and learn and be able to adopt best practices which we've which we've done as we've gone forward you know but what we're, we take the, it very seriously we actually do have a uh, we uh We have a uh, we call it a standard, but it's, you know, others would maybe call it a policy, but it's recently rolled out, which is that if you're going to be an Avello crew member, we call our employees crew members, then you must be vaccinated. And, you know, we we eased our way into it. We wanted to encourage people over time to, to do that and ultimately we decide, okay, it's time. And, you know, from from here on out, everybody that's either here has has got to get vaccinated. And if they're a a new hire, well, they they have to have been vaccinated. So so that's kind of how we approach it. We are big believers in the vaccines. We're big believers in the science. We're big believers in the fact that we're in a mission critical business and uh, having people that are unvaccinated and exposed maybe to COVID um, creates issues that, you know, drive quarantines and isolation and is very disruptive to our operation and apart from that we just think it's the right thing as a as you know just in terms of safety making sure people stay safe i'd love for all of our customers to be vaccinated i wish that that was the case but i'd sure rather not have to get into the enforcement game which would be required if we went down that path but hey you know what if that's where we go we'll be supportive and we'll we'll do everything we can and make sure we do the right thing
1: that's a real uh, pragmatic position andrew thank you for that we really appreciate what you've said here, Andrew, and it's exciting what you're doing. What else do you want our listeners to know about either you or Avello um, that you haven't said yet? Well, I
3: think that I'll say maybe two things. Number one is we, uh, we're we doing a really good job out there. We're running at phenomenal levels of of operational performance. And I'm really proud of that. Now we're really small and we're out in California during the summer. Weather's really good. Okay. So I, you know, it's, it's going to get harder as we go into the winter season and, and, you know, New Haven has its own operational challenges. That'll be a little tougher, but we're really doing a great job. We did, I think in the month of August, I think we did about a 92% on time performance within, within a 14 I think September is going to be close to ninety. July was ninety-two as well. I mean, so really terrific numbers, and I think it's a testament to the team that we have in place and their skills and capabilities. And so I'm really proud of that, and uh, really proud of them for how they're performing each and every day. Secondly, and maybe more important, is just that you know we've just done a great job with our customers. We get tons of emails, LinkedIn notes, handwritten notes, you name it, just compliments about our people. And I mean, everybody loves a low fare and everybody likes to be able to fly somewhere maybe they couldn't fly before nonstop at a low price. But but what really is is really satisfying is to see so many of those occasions where people are complimenting our people. And it's usually our, our in-flight crew members and also our airport people who interact with our customers. And that that's really gratifying because we, we really want that to be how customers view us. We'll have to do it, you know, consistently all the time. But I think that if we're successful in doing that, which is a high priority, so I know we will be, then I think that'll go a long way toward creating longer-term loyalty with our customers and and getting customers hopefully to, to view us as uh, an airline that they really want to fly, not one that they choose to fly only because it's simply the, the lowest price. But 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 it's more than just that. And so I'm really proud of those two things, and we're excited to bring what we call it our soul of service. By the way, I mean, I, I kind of touched on this, but we're very focused on hiring people, especially those who interact with our customers, who are just warm, friendly, caring kind of people because, you know, not everybody is built that way. And it doesn't mean you're better or worse. It's just, you know, like you want people like that that are in those kind of roles. And, and I think we've done a terrific job of, of hiring those people, uh, giving them good training, giving them good leadership And let them go out and do their thing. And it's really uh, something our customers are noticing. And so that's something that gives me a lot of pride. And and we uh, expect that we will continue to uh, to approach things that way as we scale our business.
2: Well, Andrew, I know our listeners are going to love this conversation. We've been talking about your airline and rooting for you as you got started. So this kind of builds out the story a bit. Hopefully, uh, we'll have you back in the spring and we can talk more about how things are going.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Bye-bye. We'll be right back.
0: The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to
1: Airlines Confidential. I hope you enjoyed our Q&A with Andrew Levy. And now it's time for some of your listeners' questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Chris, we've got a question from John in Dallas. Hi, guys. Love the show. In the conversation two weeks ago with Christina Kasotis, she claimed that she could not understand the argument against PFCs. Her explanation did not capture the reason for airline resistance and put up a straw man argument by saying if there was no PFC, there would be no investment. On the contrary, airports have the ability to put an identical charge into their lease with airlines. The difference is they would then have to claim it as part of their cost per in plane passenger or CPA and truly admit that the cost of operating at their airport has gone up. Airports liked the idea of a PFC increase because it would circumvent hard conversations with their tenants. Chris, what do you think? (laughs) Did Christina sidestep this idea?
2: (laughs) Well, thanks, John. And I'm guessing John doesn't work for Love Field or DFW. Uh, He works somewhere (laughs) else in the aviation business in the DFW area. I, I think this question raises some good and valid points. First, on a broader issue, I think this is probably a great example of airlines and airports talking past each other and digging in so deeply into their strongly held beliefs that, again, they keep talking past each other or ignoring what each other say. I tend to agree with John that raising the PFC might be an easier path for airports than hard negotiations, although the effort to raise the cap hasn't worked so far. And they still have to present their plans for the PFC to the carrier committee that operates at the airport. I also think airports made a tactical error in trying to raise the PFC so much, nearly double from 450 to 850. I think if they had come out when this started a couple of years ago and said, like, over a seven or eight year period, we want to incrementally raise the PFC from 450 to 850, you know, by 2028 or something, it would have been a much easier debate for them. I don't think that they would have had such resistance. And then I think airlines whine about fees depressing demand way too much. And then they turn around and they raise baggage fees another $5 or whatever else. And what also is never discussed is how the growth of airline traffic has generated more revenue with the existing PFC. So again, everyone just sticks to their arguments and there isn't the conversation I think is needed. But in general, I tend to agree that John raises some valid points. You know, Ben, you've had more experience with airport negotiations and, and looking closely at the cost per plane passenger data. Sometimes I wonder how much that matters versus the other parts of the airport offering when they're trying to attract A new carrier or an airline's looking at expansion at an existing facility, but would be interested in your take on John's question as well.
1: I I think he makes a really good point. I mean, Christina was a great guest, and obviously, the purpose of that interview wasn't to get into a debate around PFCs, right? So I appreciate her position on this a lot, but I do think airports have lots of ways to generate revenue and lots of ways to cover their costs. And airlines certainly want efficient airports. They want lower operating costs at airports. But what they would like to do is not pass that cost directly onto consumers in terms of what is essentially a ticket tax that they can't avoid. The thing about raising a bag fee, while the airlines can go ahead and do that, is a customer can still say, well, I'm not going to check a bag and not pay that fee. And a customer can't avoid the PFC at an airport. They pay it as part of their ticket. So I think the airlines would say, well, maybe charge me a little more for my ticket counter space or raise the landing fee a little bit. And I can decide how much I fly to your airport based on that or something, some other way that you can raise money from me, but don't, tax my customers directly. I think that's what most, the way most airlines think of it. But in the end, a dollar is fungible, right? And eventually the customer is going to pay in some way because the airport needs the
2: investment in some way. Well, just like the debate when Uber and Lyft started, what, almost 10 years ago now, but there was a lot of effort to block their access to airports in part to either protect taxi drivers or protect airport parking revenue but what w- this really opened was a conversation about ac- competition for access to the airport with regard to transportation to the airport. And now you have, you know, on-site airport being much more competitively priced. Consumers can decide for themselves: is it worth driving to the airport and leaving my car, or is it is it more economical to take an Uber each way? It depends on where the airport's located as well. But there's competition that ultimately helps consumers with more options and more choices. And and airports, I think, have responded fairly well to the competition by being creative and offering online specials and alternative ways to uh, entice you to park at the airport. And then, Ben, a question from Jeremy all the way from Australia. I'll let you take this one. Hey, guys, love the show. Another guy who loves somebody else who loves the show. Uh, My question is, what do you think of the likelihood that Spirit and Frontier may one day merge to form a massive, ultra-low-cost carrier in the U.S.? Same business model, same aircraft types, complementary networks. What do you think? What would the pros and cons of this hypothetical merger be?
1: Well, thank you very much, Jeremy, and thanks for listening from Down Under. You're right. The Spirit and Frontier do have a lot of reasons to think they might fit together well. In addition to the ones you make about fleet type and complementary networks, the largest single shareholder of Frontier used to be the largest single shareholder of Spirit. The CEO of Frontier used to be the head of marketing for Spirit. So the two airlines know each other quite a bit. I might quibble with the word massive ULCC. Together, Spirit and Frontier would probably still carry only about 5% or maybe 6% of the traffic in the United States. So they'd still be, as a ULCC, they'd be bigger than any ULCC in the country for sure, but they still wouldn't come close to matching the size of the bigger airlines in the U.S. The biggest issue, I think, is that airline mergers are just messy. I know they've happened, and they've happened a number of times. And unlike most mergers, most business mergers, the synergies are on the cost side. You find you can purchase more efficiently, and certainly that might be true for Spirit and Frontier. Maybe they could buy airplanes more efficiently if they bought them in bigger chunks for a bigger airline. But you think about consolidating customer bases and things like that. Airline mergers... Are almost always rationalized on revenue synergies. The fact that by combining our networks, we can maybe serve the same number of customers, but don't have to fly any planes. If we're Delta and Northwest, when we merge, maybe Memphis doesn't need to be as big. Maybe Cincinnati doesn't need to be as big. But because we have Detroit and Atlanta now in the family, We can still carry all the customers and, you know, do some of that. So because of that, I'm not sure about a merger is obvious between these two carriers because they basically would sort of want to keep doing exactly what they're doing. And it's not clear where the synergies come, except for the fact that maybe they won't step on each other as much. And if you're someone who's going to approve this merger, you might say, well, I would like Spirit and Frontier to have competition just like I want every other airline to have competition too. So if the real synergy is that you could manage the growth of ULCCs in the US more completely by having one large single ULCC, I'm not sure that's the best argument to bring forward to the regulators to say that's why you should approve this merger. So other than that, You'd have to think that it's going to be, you know, we'll save some headquarters space or we'll be able to buy airplanes more efficiently or we'll be able to align policies in a way so there's less confusion. And there's some good reasons to think it might happen, but it's far from obvious to me. That's my thought. I know that probably sounds convoluted, but I hope that helps, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair answer. Kind of like, you know, a little bit of game theory like you and your son picking hubs. The same thing here when you start trying to mix and match. It, it kind of makes sense. You know, still got JetBlue and Alaska out there. Will they eventually be a, a merger candidate as well? So people speculate, but again, I don't think there's any anything driving any airline to a deal right now. And if they've survived these last almost two years with COVID uh, without taking action, I'm not sure there's an impetus anytime soon. Before we get to finer wine, we'll get to a reminder that Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Ben, our finer wine is from Jason in Marietta, Georgia. I've been a top-tier frequent flyer on Delta for more than a dozen years, always either platinum or diamond level. I've been working hard this year to achieve at least platinum status, and Delta has been giving some great incentives to do so. Then this summer, they announced all frequent flyers will get their status extended, I feel like I'm being punished for living up to the rules. People have had ample notice. So instead of being a little higher up on the totem pole next year for my good behavior, I'm going to be left competing with tens of thousands of other Delta passengers flung out of Atlanta who got their extension for free. Ben, finer wine.
1: You know, Jason, you bring up a fantastic point. To the point where I'm going to say, I think this is fine. I don't think this is a whine at all. I actually think Delta should do more for you because you have flown more and done more than some people who haven't flown and just had their tier level extended. Now, I understand why Delta and other airlines have done this. The last thing you want to do is disenfranchise what, at least at one point, was an energized base of travelers who flew you and were engaged in your program. And you want to make sure when they start traveling again, they still choose your airline. So I understand why Delta has extended benefits for people. But it seems at the same time, they could say, but for people who have flown more, maybe we can do a little more for them. Maybe something more in lounges or bag fees or access or something. So I think it's fine. And I think that Delta should sort of differentiate more than they have here. Someone like you who has bought a lot of tickets this summer should get more next year from your airline than someone who just flew in 2019 and got it extended. I don't think this is a wine at all. Chris, what do you think?
2: I I think this is legitimate. I mean... As you said, this is a macro issue with regard to Delta or any airline's relationship with a big group of top tier flyers and they want to keep their loyalty. But, you know, on a one off basis, if Jason makes platinum level, I would get on the phone and say, Look, I've been working really hard. Show me some love here and make me a diamond. So, for those passengers who have been on the road and flying a lot this year, I think they got a legitimate gripe to. Try to get a little bit more extra from from their carrier.
1: You know, and I am happy to hear though that Delta has been using their loyalty program as an incentive for people to travel who can too. I think that's really smart, and I've I've been an advocate over the a number of months to say I think loyalty programs are good platforms to incent people who are more likely to want to go travel because they certainly traveled before. Yep. Well, as we wrap up, it's time for our shout outs. And my shout outs go as an extension of one you did a little while ago, Chris, when you talked about the dogs in Miami. And now we have an extension of this with COVID sniffing dogs in Dubai as well. And I think it's fantastic that uh, we're using these great animals, training them in a way to detect people who might otherwise bring false negative tests or false verification that they're vaccinated and the dogs will just sniff that out. So the more we see that, I think the safer we'll be as travelers. And it's great that we can count on these COVID sniffing dogs to do that for us.
2: Gotta love our pooches. They work hard all the time. And my shout out is to Austin Bergstrom Airport. Southwest continues to show Austin Some love in the best way they know how, and that's by adding more flights, 20 new nonstops to nine new destinations by March 2022. With that, I'll say goodbye.
1: Thanks for joining us on this week's Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Andrew Levy for a great interview.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.